You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. I hear there is a uh, NCAA championship going on or games, playoffs, and you might have heard coaches say that um, they've got a deep bench. Well, folks, we've got a deep bench when it comes to worship. Uh, I'm just blown away by the talent um, of, our, of our teens and student ministry, and I appreciate all that Trey and some of the other leaders do, and of course, Pastor Paul pours in to them. Very appreciative of that. Turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. We've been walking um, last week and this week and the next coming weeks we are going to be walking along with Jesus and the disciples um, as he has some last words for them. In, in the um, Gospel of John, we have John giving us quite a bit of um, detail of Jesus' last words to his disciples before Jesus is going to be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to be put on trial and... Uh, Even as an innocent man, he's going to be condemned to die on a cross. So let's pick it up in John 13, verse 31. We'll actually be looking at several verses in John 13, but pick it up in verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children... Yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Before we pray this morning, I want to share a prayer request with you that we're going to pray about this morning, and I would encourage you to kind of add to your list as well. One of our, one of our church members, Frida Pittman, uh, been part of this church for a very long time, but over the last three years, she's been serving with a ministry called uh, Crisis Response International. She got connected with them when her house was flooded out, and, and Crisis CRI helped her to get her home back together. They took care of her and did ministry to her, for her, while uh, she was recovering from the hurricane. From that, God kind of planted a a seed in in Frida's heart to get involved. So out of the great tragedy that she went through in losing most of what she had, her home and all of her contents, God led her to get involved with this ministry. And over the last three years, she's been serving all over the place, living in Virginia, but then being sent out to for hurricane response, tornado response, even devastating wildfires. She's been serving all over the place. But as I speak this morning... She's in Poland, and her team, uh, part of her team is in Ukraine right now. She will be crossing the border and going into Ukraine as well. They are serving in an orphanage there, not too far from the capital and from where the bombs are falling. She texted me this morning and said that uh, there's a team in an orphanage serving. They're already seeing people come to faith in Christ. She texted me earlier this week, said she was going to board a plane and be heading over, and I texted her, and I said, Frida, God's been preparing you your whole life for this moment. 
I, I, I don't know what it's like to be hunkered down in a basement or a building somewhere while planes are flying over that I know have ordnance and bombs that they're going to be dropping maybe on the very house that I'm in. I don't know what that's like. I don't know what it's like to look out of a window and see troops from a foreign army taking over my city. I have no idea what any of that's like. I have no idea what the anxiety and hardship and pain. But I told Frida, I said, although God's been preparing you for this for a very long time, what you are about to experience is unlike anything you've ever experienced. And pray, Frida, we're going to be praying for you. So we're going to do that this morning. So let's bow our heads. Father, all down through time and history and space, ever since the church began, we have tons and tons of historical, true accounts of people who give of themselves to help someone else. Father, time and time again, we see people running towards danger, not running away from it. And they're running towards it but so that they can help someone in need. And Father, we thank you for police officers, fire departments, EMS that serve here every week doing that, exactly that same thing. But also down through history, we've seen organizations, groups who stand upon the gospel and stand upon your word and, Father, they take very seriously the command to love as they've been loved. And, Father, it compels them to go to dangerous places. It compels people like Frida and her team to go to a place that, quite frankly, is one of the most dangerous places on earth right now, and yet they're running towards it, not away. And, Father, as they serve on the border and as they go into this country, they see people who've lost everything, even their country. Some of them are physically injured. And Father, you have prepared Frida as a nurse for so many years to do exactly what you've called her to do. So Father, I pray that you would give her incredible courage. I pray, Father, that you give her incredible focus. I pray for her team and I pray for safety and security. I pray, Father, that they would be able to do what you've called them to do. And Father, when the days are long and when the nights are hard, I pray, Father, that they would know your presence in a way that they've never known it before. Give them fruit for their labor. Already people who've put their faith in you because of their testimony there. And not just them, but North Carolina Baptist Missions, Samaritan's Purse, and other people who love you are there because they're doing what you said for us to do, and that's to love others the way we love ourselves. So, Father, we pray for your provision, we pray for your comfort, and we pray for your protection. Father, I know that, that fear... And a situation like that can be debilitating. But Father, I pray that these teams and all the others who've went to serve in your name, that they would recognize that no weapon formed against them shall prosper. That greater is you in them than the evil that is very present in Ukraine. We ask all this in the strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ, the righteous, our King, our Savior, and our Lord. We ask this in his name. Amen. I read this week uh, an interesting article that there is a university up in Hackettstown, New Jersey. It's a very small private college, Centenary University. They are offering a, a master's degree that some of you might be interested in. They are offering a 30-hour master's program on the focus of happiness. So you can spend your hard-earned money 
to earn a master's degree that you can hang on your wall and you can frame it really nice, that you got a master's degree in happiness. We really shouldn't be surprised at that at all. I mean, everywhere today, all people everywhere are looking for this elusive thing called happiness. Maybe that's what brought you here today. Maybe you've heard that there's something about following Jesus that can change your life and give you meaning. Did you know that people all over the world are asking the same questions? Whether you're in Ukraine with bombs falling over your head or whether you're in the, the Amazon jungle and have never had any outsiders, Westerners, or anyone coming to your tribe, do you know that no matter where you go on earth, whether it be China, Thailand, India, wherever you go, if, if, human, if humanity is honest about what they're really asking, they're all asking some of the same questions, some of the questions you're asking. Where did I come from? And that's more of a question of just, I came from my mother and father. I'm talking about where did all of this come from? Those folks look up in the stars at night and they see the stars and they think, how did that get there? But an even more deeper, more troubling question is, more than how did all of this become to be, why am I here? Why am I in it? Why, why am I living here at this time in this space? Who am I and why am I here? As a matter of fact, I'm finding that more and more 20-year-olds, 20-somethings, are really confused about this fundamental question. What is my purpose in life? Is it, is it simply to graduate high school, go get a degree, get a job, work some large portion of my life, and you know how it works, right? You, you're in high school and you can't wait to get out of high school. And then you get out of high school and either you go to get a job or, or you go to the university, or you go to the community college and you work through a degree program. You're like, okay, I'm just, if I could just get the degree, then everything's going to be fine. I'm going to be happy. You get the degree, you put it in a nice frame, you hang it on the wall. And beyond the graduation day, maybe a few weeks, you're pretty psyched about that, pretty uplifted about that. But then it's time to find a job. Then you got to find just a perfect job, the, a good paying job. So you find it. You find that great career, and you, you get the job. And for a little while, you're happy. But then after a while, it's just the day in and day out, right? Well, if I could just find the right person to marry, if I, if I could just find the right husband or wife, then everything's going to be okay. And some of you are going, yeah, I thought it would be. <laughs> but then real life happens, right? If I've ever done any premarital counseling with you, what, do I, what did I tell you? I told you it takes about a year and a half, two years for the newness to kind of wear off. And then love really gets tested at that point. Well, then it's like, okay, we're going to have some kids. That'll make us happy. And then the next thing you know, you find yourself, well, one day I'm going to retire and I won't have to work anymore. That's when I'll be happy. You know where I'm going here, right? It's like the old cartoons that you used to see where you've got somebody with a donkey and a, and a cart and they've got a stick with a carrot hanging in front of the donkey's nose. So the donkey just keeps walking and walking and walking, thinking one day he's going to finally get the carrot, although he never really does. That's not too unlike why a university would offer a master's degree in happiness because there's a whole lot of people looking for it and very few have found it. The disciples with Jesus and the crowds that have been gathering around Jesus, they're not any different than you and I. Although they lived in a different time with a lack of technology like we have, human beings have been the same, well, ever since God created us. We're all looking for something to give us meaning and purpose. These disciples, they think they found it in Jesus. They've been following him for over three years now. 
The crowds have seen the miracles that Jesus has performed, and they're thinking, this guy is where I can find some happiness and some real meaning in life. And they're not too wrong about that. The only problem is, is how they're defining happiness and meaning in life. You see, these 12 and the crowds have come to the conclusion that Jesus is going to fix their life and give them prosperity and power and influence. And the way they're defining it is that when Jesus goes into Jerusalem, he's already entered. We looked at that last week. The crowds are thinking that Jesus is going to run out the Roman occupiers. You see, the Israelites at this time have found them yet again, found themselves yet again in bondage. The Romans run the show. The Caesar calls the shots. Now, the the Roman government has allowed the Israelites to have their little religion, but the Israelites are tired of being under the thumb of the Roman government. Gentiles, by the way. People people who who worship Caesar rather than God, they are tired of being under their thumb. So Jesus, who can raise dead people back to life, Jesus, who can give sight to the blind, Jesus, who can can take a lame man who's never walked and, and give him the ability to walk. They're thinking, if this guy can do this, there is no Roman government, Caesar or otherwise, that's going to be able to control us any longer. Jesus is going to come into the city. Jesus is going to ascend the throne. He's going to build a kingdom. And all of us Israelites, man, we're going to have it made. We're going to have money. We're going to have power. We're going to have influence. That's what the 12 are thinking. The 12 are thinking that when Jesus does this, guess who's going to be first in line to have a really nice, cushy job? And therein lies where they look for happiness. The problem is, They don't understand Jesus at all, even after they've walked with him for three years. So Jesus has just a few hours left with these men. From chapter 13 to chapter 17, we're going to be walking through this over the next few weeks. This is called the farewell discourse. In other words, from 13 to 17, Jesus is looking at his men, and he says to them over and over again, I'm going away. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. Yes, three days later, I'm going to resurrect, but I'm going away. So imagine that you know that that your life is coming to an end. Let's, Let's imagine for a moment that you know that 36 hours from now, you're done. What kind of conversations would you have with your family, those closest to you? What would you want them to know? What would you want them to know as a priority for their life as you prepare for your departure? That's exactly where Jesus is. So Jesus, from 13 to 17, is going to pour everything that he's got into these men, nothing new, everything that he's going to say he's already said to them. But greater than that, Jesus is going to demonstrate in this first discourse, Jesus is going to demonstrate for them one of the most important factors for them as his followers, that they must live out. And that if they fail to do this, if they fail to live this out, not only will they fail in the mission that he's going to give them, but they will fail to glorify God completely. So let's back up into chapter 13. I want to kind of set the stage and give you the story of what's going on here because what's happening in chapter 13 is one of the most powerful stories, powerful images of of anywhere you'll see in Jesus' life. Yes, the moment at Lazarus' tomb when he calls Lazarus back to life, that was a powerful moment. The point at which Jesus heals a blind man in John chapter 9, that's a powerful moment. When Jesus takes a few loaves of bread and a few fish in John chapter 6 and turns it into enough food to feed over 10,000 people, that's a powerful moment. 
But this moment in the upper room with the 12, and there's no one else there, maybe a couple of servants that will come and go, but it's just Jesus and the 12. This is one of the most intimate moments that we're going to see with Jesus and the 12. So to give you a little background, here's what's happening. Jesus has already came into the city of Jerusalem. The whole city is celebrating the Passover. And if they're celebrating, this is a Thursday evening. All the preparations have been made. Jesus has secured a room for them to go, and they're going to have a meal. And all over the city of Jerusalem on that night, everyone is celebrating the same thing, Passover. Well, what was the Passover? If you go back to Exodus 12, you don't have to turn back there. When the nation of Israel was enslaved to Egypt, God miraculously, and through Moses' leadership, sets them free. And one of those nights, God says that there's going to be a death angel that passes through, and only those who are true Israelites, those who have their faith in God, and de de uh, demonstrate that faith by putting the blood of a lamb over the door, will be the only ones that survive. So, on that night, those families would gather in the home, they would have a meal, on the outside of that door would be the blood of a, of a lamb, and that blood represented something that was innocent that had died on behalf of that family, almost like a covering of protection over that family. And the father of the home would lead the children, and the, the father would lead the family, and he would talk about all that God was doing. He would teach them well, all down through history. The Jewish people have celebrated Passover, and they have a very distinct way they do it. They have a meal, and there's portions of that meal that all point back to that exodus, but, but for Orthodox Judaism, they don't realize that, that that meal is actually pointing to Jesus. And only a few people have figured that out, those who've put their faith in Jesus. But here in this moment, Jesus and the 12 are in the upper room. Now, one of the things the disciples would have noticed but didn't say anything is when they came into the room, it would have been customary for a servant to be in the room. And when you came into the room, that servant would have stopped you at the door and washed your feet. They would have had a basin of water and a long cloth, and they would have had you sit down, and you, they would have washed your feet. Now, this is not just something that had a, a spiritual emphasis to it, especially what Jesus is going to teach us, but, but this was kind of practical. Now, not to get too graphic, but imagine a million people in the streets of Jerusalem, and there are animals and people and trash and garbage and dirt and mud and lots of droppings from animals, and you're walking pretty much barefooted through those streets, yeah, there's going to be some stuff caked up on your feet when you roll up in there to have that meal. So it was very practical to clean feet before you sit down. And the other part of this is they're not sitting at a table in a chair. They're sitting at a U-shaped table that was very low to the floor. And I told you last week that they would recline on their, on their fists. In other words, they're laying down, their feet are out to the behind them. So get this, your feet are very close to the table. You're starting to see why it's kind of important to wash feet. Well, there would usually be a, a slave or a servant that was hired and paid to be in the room to do this. But the disciples had to have noticed that when they come in, when they came into the room, there was no servant there to wash their feet. The meal begins. And yes, there are nasty feet right there at the table. We don't know when. But Jesus gets up from the table at one point during the meal and walks over to a corner of the room, and he takes off his outer garment. He picks up a, a towel, and he wraps himself up with that towel and picks up a basin of water. Now, I would imagine there was conversation happening, but when people see Jesus do this, they know immediately what he's going to do. The rabbi, the son of God, the son of God is preparing 
wash the feet of the disciples. No rabbi would ever do that. Especially a rabbi who is God in the flesh, the only begotten of the Father, the the Son of Man and Son of God. For God in the flesh to do this menial task was not only, well, just poorly looked upon for anybody to do this. Certainly Jesus shouldn't do this. And the disciples are blown away. I think, I think immediately at the beginning, and of course Peter's the one who speaks up, but I think immediately they're stunned, they're stunned in silence. They have no idea what's going on here. Jesus is taking on the role of a doulos. Doulos is the Greek word for servant, slave. And all through the New Testament, that word is used over and over again to talk about serving and servanthood and service to humanity. And now Jesus has lowered himself to the place of becoming a slave and washing the feet of those 12 men. Sitting at the table is none other than Peter, who just a few hours from this moment is going to deny that he ever knew Jesus. Sitting at this table is Judas, who we're going to learn about a little bit more here in just a moment. Judas, who is known as the betrayer. Jesus washes the feet of every person in that room. And then in verse 15, he says this. He says, for I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Jesus says, I know you guys are confused as to why I would do such a, a lowly thing. So Jesus clears it up. He says, I want to show to you what an example is of serving and loving people unconditionally. I want to show you what it means to truly serve. Now these disciples have been arguing among themselves who's going to be the greatest. As a matter of fact, in that upper room, as we read the other gospel accounts, they were arguing about, hey, who's going to have the cushy job when Jesus kicks the Romans out? Certainly Peter, James, and John think they've got it made. They've been kind of the inner three. But they've all been arguing about, hey, what kind of role are we going to have? And they're all focused on how they can be happy in Jesus' new kingdom. The problem is, is they don't understand his kingdom, and they don't understand happiness, true happiness. So Jesus says to them, I've just given you an example of what it means to serve and to love. But then notice this in verse 17. He says, if you know these things, what things? The example, the love, the caring, the serving. If you know these things, look at this, blessed are you if you do them. You see that word blessed? Guess what you can do? You can take that word and translate it in the English as happy. Happy are you if you serve other people. Now, does that not run contradictory to the culture in which we live? I mean, I mean, think about the last two years of this COVID mess and the lockdowns and all that we've had. To, we have become more isolated. We have become more separated. We have become focused more on ourselves than we ever have. And I'm guilty as anyone taking care of our four, our family, our five, our six, our eight, taking care of our own. Jesus knew what was going on in the hearts of disciples, and he he gives them a tangible example right there in that upper room of what it means to be happy. Happy is serving someone else. Married folk, you know what happiness is in your marriage? Serving your spouse. Unloading the dishwasher. Mowing the yard, picking up your clothes out of the bathroom. 
Does that lead to happiness? For those of you who've been married 25, 30, 40 years, y'all are shaking your heads yes, right? Exactly. Happiness, blessedness, is serving someone else. But there's something in this upper room that is not so happy. There's something going on in this upper room that even the disciples are not even aware of, but, but Jesus is going to raise this to the surface. He says, verse 18, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. There's somebody in the room who's not on board. There's somebody in the room who doesn't believe that Jesus is who he says he is. There's somebody in the room who spent three years with Jesus who has followed Jesus, has watched the miracles, heard the teachings, saw the love. You see, there's somebody in the room who's a fake. There's somebody in the room who's going to betray. Now, what's amazing about this is, is that after all that Jesus has done, there's still one in the room who doesn't believe. There's still one in the room who not only doesn't believe, but is going to do his best effort to undermine and even be part of Jesus being crucified. Look at verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now this shocks the disciples. And in the room, what's amazing to me, every time I read this account, Look at verse 22. The disciples looked at one another, and they were uncertain of whom he spoke. So it's not as though everybody in the room goes, oh, yeah, we know who that is. It's that guy right there, Judas. What does that tell us? It tells us that all these years that Judas looked, talked, acted like the other 11. Now, we learned last week, and the disciples don't know this, but Judas has been stealing money out of the money bag. He's kind of like the treasurer for the group. He's been stealing money. But the disciples don't know who it is. And that tells me that Judas fit in very well with this group. That Judas looked like the other disciples. If you go back in Luke's gospel, you'll find that Jesus sends the 12 out. They go out and they do miracles, just like Jesus was doing. The 12 come back and they give a report of all the miracles they did. Judas performed miracles. Jesus sends out 72, the 12 are included. The 72 comes back and they go, Jesus, our minds are blown. We're doing miracles just like you. Judas was part of that. Judas was at the tomb that Lazarus walked out of alive. Judas was there when the man blind from birth was given his sight. All of these things have testified clearly as to the identity of Jesus, and yet this man does not believe. Verse 24. Actually, verse 23, look at this. It says here, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. I, I like this about John's gospel. John refers to him because John's writing the gospel. John refers to himself as the one that Jesus loved. If I was writing a gospel, I hope I could say that. I wonder if it was almost like a little poke at the other disciples. But nonetheless, John is the one whom Jesus, he says that Jesus loved. And Jesus did. Now, I want you to get this picture of this table. The table looks like this, just a kind of a U-shaped very low to the floor. Here's what I think is going on. It's the only way I can make sense of this text. We're not told exactly how they were sitting in the table and how this 
fits in with what's happening in that upper room. I'm, I'm going to give you my idea of what's going on here. So on this U-shaped table, you've got Jesus sitting over here on this prong. And to his right is John, the gospel writer. Now, in this table sitting, there's a place, two places of honor, and those two places of honor is to the host or the rabbi or the father, to his right and to his left. So if you were to walk into any home that were sitting at the table, you'd have the father sitting in one place, and to his right and to his left would be the places of honor. Oftentimes, maybe the oldest son would be sitting at one, and maybe the next oldest son would be sitting at the other. So here's Jesus sitting right here. John is sitting to his, or laying to his right. Judas is to his left. Judas is sitting in the place of honor. I'll come back to that in just a minute. Sitting over here on the other side is Peter. He's over on this other prong. And here's what we hear in the, in the uh, text. People heard Jesus say that somebody's going to betray. Well, everybody's whispering, who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? Well, Peter goes, hey, John, psst, John. Because John's sitting right across from him right to the right of Jesus, reclining. Hey, John, find out who it is. John, and it's, he's perfectly situated for this, John is already laying down, so he lays his head back, and guess where he lays his head? Right on Jesus' chest, right here. And he leans up to the side of Jesus, probably under his voice a little bit, and says, Jesus, who is it? Who's the betrayer? And Jesus says this in verse 25, I'm sorry, it's 26. It is he to whom I will dip this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So here's what happens. It was customary during this meal to dip bread in the wine and then eat it. Jesus takes the cup, takes the bread, dips it, and guess where he turns? To his left. And on his left, on his back, by the way, at the back of Jesus is Judas the betrayer. And Jesus takes the bread and hands it to Judas and probably the only people in the room who understand what's happening is probably Peter and, he, and John to a, less, to a greater degree. John is right there. John is sitting in one of the places of honor. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, look at this, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to Judas, what you are going to do, do quickly. One of the most amazing moments in all the New Testament. The betrayer, sitting at Jesus' back, takes the bread, eats of the bread, and at that moment, John says that Satan himself enters into Judas. By the way, you can search all through Scripture. You can't find anything exactly what's going on right here. This is, this is unique in all of Scripture. So when, when that happens, Jesus not only looks at Judas, but Jesus looks right into the eyes of Satan himself and says to him, what you have planned to do, go ahead and go do it quickly. Is that not odd? Is that not peculiar? Judas gets up, leaves the room. The rest of the disciples are unclear as to what's going on here. Some of them think that he's going out to, to give some money to the poor because that's kind of the traditions that, that you would do on Passover, that you would take some money and go give it to the poor. So some of the disciples are still not clear as to what's going on. They still don't recognize Judas as the betrayer, but I think John and I think Peter does. So we have to ask the question at this moment, why didn't Jesus do this? Why didn't Jesus stand up and go, this guy right here is going to betray me? Let's do get him, guys. Get him. Tie him up. Stone him. Let's prevent him from going and betraying. 
But wait a minute, there's an even bigger question. Why did Jesus choose Judas to start with? Have you ever thought about that? Why would Jesus, and and Jesus clearly says in this gospel, I think it's in chapter 6, he says that he knew from the very beginning who the betrayer was going to be. I would argue that Jesus being God knew who the betrayer was in eternity past. So why would Jesus choose a guy to walk with him for three plus years to get in this upper room knowing that he's going to betray? Judas is going to be the key factor in Jesus being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. They needed somebody to positively identify him. They needed somebody on the inside that would sell him out. They needed someone that they could, that they could confide in, that could tell them where Jesus would be and when. And that guy was Judas. So why would Jesus walk with him for three years? Two reasons. Number one, it was the sovereign will of God that Jesus died on a cross. Now, you've got to get this, folks. Don't ever think of Easter. Don't ever think of Resurrection Sunday and the Passion Week. Don't ever think that that Jesus got caught up in some bad circumstances, some people that didn't really like him. So therefore, they put into motion this whole idea that we're going to crucify him and put him on a cross because we don't like him and he's threatening our power. That's all true. But don't think that Jesus is some kind of martyr, that Jesus is some kind of, well, victim. Because the amazing thing about the gospel and the amazing thing about what happens that week, it was all planned by the Godhead Trinity as far back as you want to go. There was never a time ever in eternity past where God's scratching his head going, what are we going to do with all this sin in the world? It's not as though Jesus like, well, hey, I'll volunteer. No, Jesus was always the one who was going to die. Judas was going to be the one who betrayed. Now, Before we go too far with that, don't think for a moment that Judas is just a victim himself. Judas made his choices. So the first part of this is that it was the sovereign plan of God that Jesus be betrayed and hung on a cross. The the Old Testament prophets tell us that there would be a betrayer and that he would be sold out for 30 pieces of silver. But there's a second part here to this. We have the sovereignty of God that says Jesus will die on the cross. We have the sovereignty of God that says somebody would betray him. We have the sovereignty of God that says Jesus knew that it would be Judas. So Jesus allows all of this to take place because it was the will of the Father. And it was Jesus' will himself to lay down himself because you needed to know what true life is really about. But the second part of this is I truly believe, based on what I read in Scripture, that Jesus loved Judas. In spite of the fact that he was going to betray him. In spite of the fact that Judas was stealing from the money bag, in spite of the fact that Judas looked the part, Jesus loved him. And I think in that very moment when they're in that upper room, when Jesus has his back, would you ever, would you turn your back to a betrayer? Would you turn your back to somebody who can knife you in the back? Of course not. But Jesus in the upper room has his back to Judas. And in that moment when he dips the bread and he turns to Judas, I can't imagine Jesus looking him right in the eye, giving him one more opportunity, one more opportunity, one more opportunity to respond to Jesus' love. When Jesus washed his feet, can you imagine the guilt that is on Judas' head? Judas knows what he's going to do. Jesus is washing his feet. I mean, think about the intimacy of that moment. And Judas doesn't respond. 
Judas made his choices, but they were all in the fulfillment of God's plan. Look at verse 31. After Judas leaves, there's like a sigh of relief. I think Jesus kind of just sighs at this moment. Now listen to Jesus' response. This is incredible. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Shouldn't Jesus be kind of down and out right now? I mean, shouldn't Jesus be like, okay, I know what's coming. Judas is going to go make the deal. He's going to get the silver. He's going to tell them that Jesus often prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. Maybe that's our time to get him. And I will betray him with a kiss. I will, I will walk up and I will positively identify which one is Jesus because I know it's going to be dark there. That's what Judas is doing at this moment. What is Jesus doing? It's almost as though Jesus is relaxed. It's almost as Jesus is calm. Jesus says, now God is going to be glorified. Now God is going to be worshipped. Now God is going to be honored. How could that be? How could it be that Jesus being betrayed is going to turn in to glory for God? Well, what drove Jesus to that cross and what drove Jesus to Gethsemane and what drove Jesus was you and I. That there would be an opportunity for a bridge to be built between God and humanity. Because what separated us from God was a whole bunch of sin and brokenness that we were born into. And Jesus is going to build a bridge between God and man. And that man by faith, believing turning from their own life, putting their faith in Jesus and what Jesus did on their behalf is going to bring not only glory to Jesus and glory to the Godhead Trinity, but get this, as we are transformed by the gospel, then we're going to bring more glory to God. Did you know this morning, all around the world, all different ethnicities, all different languages, there are people gathering in huts, gathering on beaches, gathering in bomb shelters, gathering all over the place. And you know what they're doing? In the midst of their pain, in the midst of their suffering, and even in the midst of bombs falling from an enemy, they are praising and worshiping God. It sounds to me like they found happiness. It sounds like they did it without a master's degree. Jesus said, this is about glorifying the Father. And as he glorifies the Father, the Father's going to glorify him. And as he glorifies him, the Son's going to glorify the Father. And within the Godhead Trinity, we have all three parts of the Godhead Trinity glorifying one another. But in this moment, in this hour, as Jesus goes to the cross, it's in that moment that God is going to receive glory in the suffering and the death of his Son because God's will is going to be fulfilled and not a king. And no one else on this earth is going to thwart it, even Judas and the Pharisees. They think they're putting a man to death, but what they're actually doing is fulfilling the will of God. Verse 33, now Jesus is ready to say something to his disciples, the 11 that are left. He says, little children, I love that term, all over the streets of Jerusalem in these upper rooms and these homes, the father sitting at the table of these families. And after they have the meal or during the meal, you know what the father would do? He would say to the children, now little children, let me tell you about God. Little children, let me tell you about the commandments. Little children, let me tell you about the time that God brought us out of Egyptian bondage. In all these homes, all through the city, you have the father or the rabbi of the home who's teaching their children. And he says, now, little children, listen to me. Jesus says the same thing in the supper room. He says, little children, and they are little children, even though they're grown adults. He says, yet a little while I'm with you, and you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, he's going to clear that up in chapter 14. But verse 34 is what I want you to see. 
He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now, that's not a new commandment at all. These Jewish men who are sitting in this upper room, they've heard that commandment their whole life out of Deuteronomy 6, where they're, they were taught, and, and, and as children, they memorized this phrase, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. They memorized it. So when Jesus says, this is a new commandment, what does he mean? It's not new at all. As a matter of fact, all these men knew that commandment. He said, a new commandment that I give you that you love one another. And here it is. This is what's new. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. What's the difference about what Jesus is saying here in, in, in relation to what they've known their whole life? Well, what they haven't known their whole life is this kind of love. They've never seen it. This is why Jesus would get in so much trouble over and over and over again. Hey, Jesus, why are you hanging out over at the tax collector's house? Well, I love the tax collector. Hey, Jesus, why would you stop in the middle of a crowd and talk to a woman who has an issue of blood? Aren't you concerned about that making you unclean? Well, no, I stopped because I love her. Hey, Jesus, why would you touch a guy with leprosy? Don't you know how dangerous that is? You could get leprosy. Don't you know how dangerous that is? Why would you do such a thing? Because I love them. Jesus, why would you wash the feet of your enemies? Because I love them. The nation of Israel, they've been commanded to love. How are they doing with it? Well, not so good. The religious rulers of the day, they would love you as long as you did what they told you to do. Oh, and by the way, they would love you as long as you had some money. And oh, by the way, they would love you as long as you didn't have any kind of infirmity. You, if, you had, if you had legs that you couldn't walk on, well, uh, you're beyond God's love. Oh, if you, if you were poor and begging in the streets, oh, well, by all means, you're beyond God's love, so we're not going to love you either. Remember the guy at the gate called Beautiful in Acts 3? Guess what? There were Israelites, Pharisee leaders walking by that guy every single day. But it was on that day that this same guy who's sitting in this upper room, Peter, that guy stops that day and says, silver and gold have I none, but what I have to you I give you in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. Peter saw him. How, why, did, why did Peter see him? Because of love? He says here, the new command that I give you is not new at all, but what is new and how I lived it out in front of you. He says to his disciples, you now know what love looks like. You now know what the Father's love looks like. He's not some mean ogre up in heaven getting ready to beat you about the head and shoulders, as some of you think today. You, you, some, of the, some of you in the room and some of you watching online this morning, your idea of God is this, that if I make one mistake, if I just make one little thing wrong, God is going to beat me down and God's going to use cancer. He's going to use heart disease. He's going to use a broken marriage. God is out to get me. I can see in your eyes right now, there's some of you in this room, I just struck a chord with you. And you believed in your mind all these years that that's who God is. Look at Jesus Christ and look at the love he has even for his enemy. Look at the love he has for these messed up, broken children he calls, men called children. Look at how he loves the outcast. Look at how he loved Matthew the tax collector. Look at how he loves. And when you see the love of Jesus, you see the love of the Father. Not just something that he had for those people way back there, but the love he has for you and you and you and you. So much so that he would allow his son to die a horrific death on a cross in your place. Notice this last part. 
Not only should you love one another by the example that I've given you, verse 35, by this, by what? By this kind of love, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Is the church known for love? Don't answer that. Or maybe we should. I know we have a lot of guests here today, and I'm so glad that you're here. I know you're here to see the baptisms, which we're getting to here in just a moment. Has your experience with the church been that of love? Or has your experience with the church is, man, that's an angry bunch of people over there. And they've been sucking on some lemons for a long time because, man, when I walked up in that place, not only did I feel ah, the discord and the anger, but I could sense it as I worshiped with them. I could sense it as I worked with them on my job. That guy over there, he goes to church every Sunday, but he is the most angry person I've ever met. There's a whole lot of people who aren't showing up at a worship service or won't show up on an event downtown because their past experience with the church has been anything but love. How is that possible? When those of us who say we follow Jesus have experienced the greatest love and the greatest grace there could ever possibly be. I think sometimes we minor on, or we major on minor things. He says, you're going to be known for your love. You're not going to, look, he says to the disciples, you're not going to be known because you can work miracles. They do work miracles. You're not going to be known for a title, reverend, pastor, preacher, apostle. It's not about the title. You're not going to be known because you've got a degree on the wall, master's degree with Jesus or master's degree in happiness. You're not going to be known because you have a lot of money in the bank. You're not going to be known because you have the best house on the street. As a disciple of Jesus, you are known for how you love. Church, you are known for how you love. In a lost, broken, cold, indifferent world that's at war with one another over politics and everything else under the sun, wouldn't it be a bright light if we walked onto the job tomorrow and simply had a smile on our face and we simply love the people we work with, whether we agree with them or not? Whether we're on the same, whether we have a D or an R on our political affiliation. Whether or not we like how they dress. Whether or not they use good, nice, fuzzy sounding language. I don't know about you, but there's not a lot of fuzzy, nice sounding language out there in the community today, is there? And guess what you've been called to do? Love them right where they are because someone loved you right where you were. <laughs> Somebody loved you right there when you weren't, when you didn't have it all together. Why is it, why is it that when I mention the name of Peter, one thing comes to mind immediately about Peter? What is it? If I, if I mention the Apostle Peter, if you, if you know a little bit about the New Testament, you've heard about Peter's life, what's the first thing if I mention the Apostle Peter you think of most of the time when I mention Peter? When he denied Jesus three times. Have you ever wondered why it is we think that? Why is it we gravitate there? Because when we look at the Peter in the book of Acts and we look at the Peter who wrote First and Second Peter, we see a, a man who's totally transformed. As a matter of fact, after Jesus' resurrection, Peter's never the same. Why is it the first thing we think of is, is Peter's failure? I'll tell you why. 
It's because it's in that failure we see our own failures. And it's in those failures we believe that Jesus has no longer, is no longer in love with us. He no longer cares for us. We dropped the ball. We messed up. We've kind of failed in the, in the, in the whole car, carrying our cross and following Jesus. So therefore, we failed and therefore, we're no longer loved. You see, we secretly believe that in those failures, God's love somehow lessens. Some of you here today have never put your faith in Jesus. I understand that. And you're thinking in the back of your head, man, you have no idea where I've been. You have no idea what I've done. You have no idea the kind of life I've lived. There's no possible way. Look, my family doesn't even love me. My kids don't even love me. My, my, family, my fa- family have completely rejected me because of the choices I've made. And you're now telling me that there's a God in heaven who loves me? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. And it's proven by what Jesus is doing and getting ready to do on that cross. You've not gone too far. Believers, those of you who are followers of Jesus and you've, well, you fail. We all fail, don't we? Man, Satan is really good at creeping into our thinking with the idea that we have to perform for God to love us. We have to do some, we have to perform some things, right? We gotta gotta do some things so that God will love us again. Some of you have been living your whole walk with Jesus with the idea that you gotta do things so that Jesus will give you an attaboy. What Jesus has been saying from eternity past, attaboy, I love you. It's not because of your works. It's not because... You're doing things, it's because, well, I love you. I think sometimes we also secretly believe that there are some people, and you can kind of fill in the blank with whoever those people are. For some of you, it may be those people are of a different political affiliation. They couldn't possibly be loved by God. For some of you, it, it's those people are someone of a different race, a different culture, a different skin color. Oh, how can, God couldn't possibly love them as much as he loves me. For some of you, it's some of the life choices that people have made, the journeys that they've walked. Make no mistake about it, what Jesus is doing in that upper room, when he loves those disciples and washes their feet, when he loves Judas enough to share a meal with him, that kind of love is alive and well today. And it's that kind of love, experiencing that kind of love, is where you will finally find happiness. It's where you'll finally find contentment. The one thing you've been running your whole life to find is right in front of you. It has been this whole time. For Judas, it was right in front of him the whole time. He even even walks up and kisses Jesus on the cheek the very night that they arrest him. Listen, folks, it's right in front of you. It always has been. Why in the world would you just keep walking by it? Don't you want to find the purpose for your life, a meaning in your life? Don't you want to have a, 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 a renewed sense of what it means to live with purpose and to finally have joy? Well, it's available today and every other day. What are you going to do with it? Father in heaven, we are amazed at your grace that uh, would forgive us of such incredible wrongs that we've done. Father, your grace is amazing in that it pursued us long before we pursued you. Your grace, meaning that favor that you have for us. And Father, quite frankly, we know we don't deserve it. 
That grace, as we see in the upper room, that grace that was there is still available today in full force, in full measure. And Father, it is that grace that can forgive us of every failure. It's that grace that can make us brand new. It's that grace and mercy and forgiveness that can give us a brand new start. And yes, Father, it's that grace and mercy where we find a blessed life or a happy life filled with joy, meaning, and purpose. Father, it doesn't come through a degree, and it doesn't come through chasing a carrot on the end of a stick. It comes by surrendering ourselves to you and then truly loving others. Father, my prayer is that every person in this building has found that purpose in their life. Father, as we move towards baptism this morning, we're going to see two beautiful young ladies. that are not ashamed of the love they found in you. And Father, they enter this baptistry this morning as a testimony of your love for them. So Father, I pray that it would touch the hearts of the people here and that we would respond accordingly. Father, we ask all this in the strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ, the righteous, our King. We ask it in his name alone. Amen. This week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist.